Well, it's good to be back in the studio today, um, and the best reason for me that I'm glad to be back in the studio today is that for the first time in five weeks, I won't be preaching and getting a massive sunburn at the same time. And if you're thinking, well, you could have avoided a sunburn by just putting on sunblock, why wouldn't you put on sunblock? I would answer, that's none of your business, and I'm not always smart. So um, today, I, I want to read what I believe is one of the craziest, most wild stories in the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament combined. This may just be the craziest story in the, in the entirety of Scripture. Um, if you grew up in church, if you grew up going to Sunday school, or if you grew up going to kids' church, I guarantee you, I, like, I full-on guarantee you, no one read you and taught you this story while you were growing up in church and go, growing up in Sunday school. Matter of fact, most adults have, have not heard this story or read this story. Maybe you've read it in your personal reading, and you were just so confused, you just skipped over it, and you wanted to pretend like it didn't exist. That might be a better approach to this story than we're going to take today. This story is so wild. This isn't like church wild. This isn't like, oh, Oh, did you see sister so-and-so has unmatched socks? This is like real world wild. This would be wild on HBO. This would be wild in the movie theaters. This story is wild. Matter of fact, this story is so wild that there are portions of this that I won't actually read out loud because some of you are watching right now and there's children in the room while you're trying to watch this. And it's so graphic that I won't read it for the sake of the children that are in the room with you. This story comes to us today from the book of Judges. It's near the end of the book of Judges and it spans over three chapters. And when we read it, the very first line of the three chapters and the very last line of the three chapters, um, they serve as a foundation for what would become a foundational and a fundamental structural change in the leadership and the government of the nation of Israel. See, Judges takes place in this kind of strange period that lasted somewhere between 200 and 400 years between when the, when the Israelites came into the promised land and between the time when they set up the kingdom and the kingship in Israel. And so they came to the promised land. They had a common ancestry, but over the course of a couple hundred years, they had drifted apart significantly. They, 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 they were one nation. They were 12 tribes, but they were 12 tribes with vastly different priorities, with vastly different amounts of how much they paid attention to the things that God wanted them to pay attention to. It, the best way to kind of describe it would be to talk about like the 13 original colonies in America. And so talking about the different tribes in Israel and saying that they were one nation would be kind of like saying, well, people in Connecticut were, are the same as people in Georgia. They, like over the course of years, they developed vastly different cultures. And so they had a common ancestry, but they had developed very different things that, that as, they, as they drifted apart over time. They had a common purpose as they came with the law of God. But as we read through the entire book of Judges, if you've ever read, read through the book of Judges, what you find out is that they had the law of God, but they had really never paid attention to the things of God. Matter of fact, most of the book of Judges, the, the stories, oh, just about every chapter begins with, and then the people drifted from God, and God allowed them to experience the, uh, the consequences of their actions and the consequences of their choices. And then God, after a period of time, after a season of time, God raised up a judge, someone to free the people. And then pretty quickly, the nation drifted away from God again. That's basically the, the rhythm and the cycle of the book of Judges. And so the story that we're going to read today, we're going to read today, it really is the culmination of all that. It's the culmination of years and years and years of we paid attention to God. We didn't pay attention to God. We experienced the consequences. God bailed us out. And then we drifted away from God again. And basically what the people of Israel were doing in the book of Judges, they represent all of us. 
Because we all start out trying to follow God and we have good intentions. And then we drift, we wander, we get ourselves in trouble. We return to God because we don't really have any other good options. Then God saves us and the cycle begins all over again. And all along, the problem that we face and the problem that Israel faced was simply this, that for many of us, we want what we want when we want it, and we want to do exactly what we want to do at any given point in time. And sometimes they wanted to follow God, usually when they had no other options and when they had no other good choices. Usually when, when they were in deep, deep trouble based on their own actions, they would turn to God and they wanted to follow God. And other times, they wanted to follow their hearts, and other times they wanted to follow other desires that they had. And it got them in big trouble over and over and over again. And all of that leads up to where we begin today in Judges chapter 19. It says this in verse 1. Now in those days, Israel had no king. This is the foundational statement here. In, in those days, Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim. One day, he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine, but she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. Now, let me explain what the, what, what's going on here. A concubine was not the type of relationship that a good Israelite man was supposed to have with a woman. This was the type of relationship that they had picked up and seen from the Canaanites around them. They'd begun to adopt some of the practices of the Canaanites. The people that they were supposed to drive out, they had begun to adopt their practices. This man, this Levite man, this man from the family of priests had begun to, to embrace the lifestyle and the culture and the cultural practices of the people around him. Israel was supposed to be husband and wife. A man and a concubine, they had some sort of legal relationship, but it wasn't a marriage and it did not require the same responsibility, almost no responsibility of the man. So this is an Israelite man who has decided, I want a woman, but I don't want a wife. I want a relationship that meets my needs, but I don't want anything that requires any real responsibility from me. And as you could imagine, as I, I think most women would get in this type of relationship, this woman gets so frustrated, so angry, that she leaves him and returns to her father. And then we're told this starting in the second half of verse 2. After about four months, her husband set out for Bethlehem to speak personally to her and persuade her to come back. He took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. When he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. Her father urged him to stay a while, so he stayed three days eating, drinking, and sleeping there. Now, here we find out something about this man and this woman. It took four months. It took four months for him to work up the courage or the nerve to go and get this woman back. We, we don't know if it took him that long to miss her. We don't know if it took him that long to get up the courage and the, and, 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 and the, and the gall to actually go and get this woman back, but it took him a while. He did not get there quickly. So he goes and he arrives at his, at his, her, at her father's house, his, you know, concubine father-in-law's house. And the father welcomes him warmly. And this is essentially a father-in-law who's trying to help these two crazy kids smooth things over. And what happens as he's there, the, the father-in-law, the, the concubine father-in-law convinces him to stay for a while. He says, why don't you stay for a few days? Why don't you stay for a few days? Why don't you stay for a few days? And so what happens over the course of these few days is eventually the man tries to leave and his, and the father-in-law is like, 
like, well, I kind of want you guys to stay here. So he decides to get this man drunk and drink, and they're drinking late into the evening, drinking large amounts of wine late into the evening, getting drunk late into the evening. And so the guy tries to wake up in the morning, but he's so hungover that it gets to be the middle of the afternoon. And then the father-in-law is like, well, no, you can't leave now. You won't get any, you won't get anywhere. You can't get anywhere that'll be safe for you. Why don't you just stay another night? And they drink late into the night that. And for four days, this goes on until finally day seven, the guy realizes what's going on. He's like, look, we're not doing this again. We're heading out. We're heading out. And so they head out and they head out and they head out with the idea that we're going to get to a place where we can spend the night safely in an Israelite village, in an Israelite city. And so what happens in verse 14, we're told this. So they went on. The sun was setting as they came to a city known as Gibeah, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. They rested in the town square, but no one took them in for the night. To understand this in the context that it was written to in the, uh, the people who are reading Judges, this was incredibly poor hospitality on the part of the city of Gibeah. This is a, a stain on the mark of an ancient city. To be known as a place of poor hospitality was a mark of death for a city. It was a mark of a city that was going to die. It was a mark of a city that God would not bless because they were, not, because they were poor in their hospitality. They were unwelcoming to strangers. But then what we're told is that this old man comes in from the fields and he offers that they can come and stay the night with him. That it was common practice in these times that people would go out and they would stay in the town square. And it was customary for a town known for good hospitality that someone would come out, that people would come out and they would compete for the privilege of bringing this, these, these visitors, these, these travelers into their homes. This is the only guy who comes in and he, he comes in and he, what he says is kind of ominous. He says, you got to come with me. Just please, 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 please don't stay the night out here in the square. It's almost like he knew the type of men and the type of people that lived in Gibeah and what they would do to people who were found in the square at night. And then we're told this, that they go back to his place, they go back to his house, they're talking, they're eating, they're, they're, they're rejoicing in the fact that they get to spend the night in a house, not in the middle of a town square. And then the crazy starts. In case, in case this story hasn't been crazy already, now the crazy starts. In verse 22, it says this, while they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have, I'll let you read it on your own from there. This wasn't, now just to understand this, this wasn't about, about gratification and enjoyment so much as it was about power and humiliation. This was part of the Canaanite culture. Again, this was something that the, the Benjamite people, these Israelite people had adopted from the Canaanites around them. This was part of, the, of, of Greek culture and many other ancient cultures where when you didn't want visitors to come around, you decided that you were going to humiliate and abuse in any way you can and abuse in the most profound ways you were going to abuse people who decided to cross into your territory. So the Gibeah, the Gibeahites, these Benjamites, these are people who have decided we don't like foreigners coming into our territory. It's going to become our practice that we will abuse people who come into our territory. Not only are we going to not welcome them, we are going to go out of our way to humiliate them, to teach anyone uh, that, and everyone who hears this a lesson that visitors and travelers and foreigners are not welcome here. So they said, you know, send out, send out that man so that we can, so we can, you know, have our way with him. We can humiliate him. We can teach him a lesson. And in doing so, teach everyone a lesson for years to come. Here's the old man's response in verse 23. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. He said, for this man is a guest in my house and such a thing would be shameful. And then he says this, this is, 
He said, here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I'll bring them out to you and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. Now, can I just say, as a father to two young daughters, I cannot imagine living in a society where you refuse to let something be done to a man, but you give your own daughter to a vicious crowd like this. But this man and these men lived in that kind of society. It says this, but they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door and slammed the door behind her. And I will not read the rest of this because it is too graphic to read out loud. But you can imagine what happened to this young woman. It picks up in verse 27. It says, When her husband opened the door to leave the next morning, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body on his donkey and took her home. And then this is, I mean, it gets crazier and crazier. When he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout the territory of Israel. I mean, just imagine you're the governor of one of the territories of Israel. And one day you're out getting the mail and you open the FedEx package and one, and one guy gets a hand and another guy gets a hand and another guy gets a foot and another guy gets a foot and another guy gets a knee and another guy is lucky enough to get the head. I mean, this, this is mail that none of us would ever want to open. But he's trying to send a message like, look, look what happened here. Look what happened. And there's a message inside. There's, there's the body parts. And then there's the message of saying what happened and where it happened. So the people of Israel get gathered together. The tribes gathered together. And at the start of, verse, the start of chapter 20, it tells us this. Then all the Israelites were united as one man from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, including those from across the Jordan in the land of Gilead. The entire community assembled in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. The leaders of all the people in the tribes of Israel, 400,000 warriors armed with swords, took their positions in the assembly of the people of God. Word soon reached the land of Benjamin that the other tribes had gone up to Mizpah. The Israelites then asked how this terrible crime had happened. The Levite, the husband of the woman who had been murdered, it's interesting they call him husband, um, said, my concubine and I came to spend the night in Gibeah, a town that belongs to the people of Benjamin. And then he goes on to describe what had happened once again. Then he says this, now then, all of you, the entire community of Israel, you must decide here and now what should be done about this. And let me tell you what their decision was. They came to this really quickly. There was very little thought that went into this. There are 12 tribes, there are 12 colonies, there are 12 tribes in, in the nation of Israel. And they decide, we're going to go and we're going to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. So they send their 400,000 strong warriors, all armed with swords, marching into the land of Benjamin. And they demand, give up the men of Gibeah or we will wipe you out. And the, Benjamin, the, the tribe of Benjamin is like, look, we're not going to hand over these guys to an angry mob. And they basically say, if you want to go to war over one dead concubine, bring it on. And so bring it on, they did. They, the, the, the other 11 tribes of Israel, they set a trap for the, nation of, for, for the tribe of Benjamin. They sent just a few warriors out and, and they were quickly overcome by, by the 25,000 warriors of Benjamin. But, what, but this is a trap so that Benjamin would reveal its full force and show its full force and send out its full force. And as soon as Benjamin sent, sent out its 25,000 warriors, Israel sent out its entire 400,000 person army and they wiped the battlefield clean. 
I mean, it was, it, was, it was a disaster for the tribe of Benjamin. They were wiped out. And then we're told this. Here, here's, here's the culmination story, the summary at the end of the chapter. So that day, the tribe of Benjamin lost 25,000 strong warriors armed with swords, leaving only 600 men who escaped to the Rock of Rimon, where they lived for four months. A little bit of nice symmetry. Took the guy four months to go get his wife, four months for those guys to escape and, and, and live in, in terror hiding. So this, and the Israelites returned and slaughtered every living thing in all the Benjamite towns, the people, the livestock, and everything they found. They also burned down all the towns that they came to. They devastated the tribe of Benjamin. 600 living men is all that's left of this once powerful tribe. And then we're told this at the start of Judges chapter 21. It says, The Israelites had vowed at Mizpah, We will never give our daughters in marriage to a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Now the people went to Bethel and sat in the presence of God until evening, weeping loudly and bitterly. O Lord God of Israel, they cried out, Why has this happened in Israel? Now one of our tribes is missing from Israel. See, they're, they're weeping because a tribe has been wiped out. But do you know why the tribe was wiped out? The tribe was wiped out because of their own actions. This is the ultimate display of a disconnect between actions and consequences. This is a group of people who are constantly driven by their own, emo own emotions, not by the understanding of the responsibility that comes with taking action. So they get carried by the, their emotions and they kill off an entire tribe. And then they get carried by, the, the, by their sadness and by the emotions of sadness. And they are now weeping and mourning because, oh no, our, part of our nation is missing. God, how could you let this happen? And I think, like God, I think God's looking in heaven going like, guys, I mean, I promised that I would not wipe out humanity with a flood again, but you are pushing the buttons. You are like, I, am, I so want to send another flood. Like, how could I let this happen? How could you let this happen? And then someone has a bright idea. They think, wow, 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 wait. The 12 tribes of Israel sound so much cooler than the 11 tribes of Israel. 11 might be a prime number, but 12 is a nice even number. It's round. I mean, you can divide it in multiple ways. We can set you a group up and it's really cool. We need to keep 12 tribes. So they ask, well, how do we keep this tribe going when there's only 600 men right now? So they go, well, were there any cities or any areas that didn't send men to help us fight the, Benj the, the tribe of Benjamin, because if there's not, we could go take them out and take their daughters and their wives and give them to the men of Benjamin. And so that's exactly what they do. They find out that there was a city called Jabesh Gilead and that they did not send any men, that they didn't want to go fight and didn't want to go wipe out another tribe. So they send, so, the, so Israel gathers another small army. They march to the town of Jabesh Gilead. They say, give us your daughters or we'll wipe you out. And as good parents, they say, no, we're not going to hand over our daughters to you. And Israel in turn wipes out all the men, mothers, sons, and people of, of Jabesh Gilead, except for the teenage daughters. And they collect 500 women, and they head to find these 600 men hanging out at the Rock of Rimon. And they say, hey, we've got some, some, some bad news and some good news. Um, the bad news is we wiped out um, all of your family. Um, we, we wiped out everything that you care about. We wiped out all of your cities. We burned down all of your cities. We killed everyone that you love. But the good news is that in our graciousness, we decided that we don't want your tribe to die out completely. So we went and we wiped out another town so that you could have wives. Now, they had a small math problem. They had a small math problem because there were 600 men and 500 women. And so they went, wait, there's still 100 men 
that don't have, that don't have wives. They missed out in the wife lottery. So how do we get these guys women? How do we get these guys wives? How do we get them someone so that they can start to rebuild the tribe of Benjamin? And then someone has another wild idea. I would imagine this is the same person who thought it was a good idea to go wipe out an entire town so that they could get wives for these guys. They say, wait, there's this festival coming up. And during this festival, there's a lot of young girls who will get out and a lot of times they'll dance and they like to dance near the border of the tribe of Benjamin. And so what we should do is we should let our daughters all go there and I mean, we, 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 did, we, told, we made a vow that we wouldn't give our daughters in marriage, but, you know, we, we didn't make a vow that we wouldn't let our daughters be kidnapped. So they, they kind of send word to these hundred men, hey, there's going to be this festival coming up, and there's going to be a bunch of teenage daughters who are, you know, kind of dancing around the border. And if you want, we will turn a blind eye, you know, when they come out, if you want to kidnap a hundred of our daughters and take them as your wives, you know, we won't say anything. And so that's exactly what happens. You end up with this group of 100 men basically at the border, like hanging out at the edge of the woods, ready to play the weirdest game of capture the flag in history. And they, like, as soon as the girls start coming out and dancing, they're like, all right, did, you, did we get to 100? There's 100 now? There's 100? Okay, ready? One, two, three, go. And 100 men run out and they carry off 100 young girls. And they have to explain, because their fathers hadn't warned them, they have to explain why somehow this is a good thing that they have been kidnapped. And then everyone goes home, feeling like the problems have all been solved. What great solutions we've all come up with. And then the book of Judges ends. Anyone feel good about the end of the book of Judges? There are, there are no heroes. There are no good moral lessons. This is not an episode of Seventh Heaven where, where, where we have a conflict that, get, that gets risen and then within 45 minutes, everything is made good and Reverend Camden solved all the problems. This is not that. There are no good solutions at the end of this story. Everyone looks bad. And everything in the nation of Israel looks like it's chaos. And before the, before the book of Judges ends, the author decides to make one scathing commentary on what has been happening in the nation of Israel. Here's what they say. Here's what they say. In those days, Israel had no king. There's that line again. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the crazy part of this story. When you look at individual choices and individual actions, you can justify every decision that was made. You can see what they were thinking, and you can, deceive, you can see what their intention was. When everybody is doing, is doing what's right in their eyes, everyone feels like they're doing the right thing. And yet, when you see the whole picture come together, what you see is it ends up being absolute chaos. But, but think of it, think of this. The guy who had the concubine had the concubine because that's what seemed right to him. The concubine ran away because that's what seemed right to her. The concubine's father-in-law got the guy drunk and delayed their trip repeatedly because that's what seemed right to him. The guys in Gibeah threatened this guy with violence because that's what seemed right to them. The guy cut up his wife to send as a message because that seemed right to him. The tribe of Benjamin refused to hand over their men to an angry mob because that's what seemed right to them. The rest of the tribes wiped out the tribe of Benjamin because that's what seemed right to them. Then they attacked a peaceful city so that they can give wives to the escapees of the war because that's what seemed right to them. Everyone did what they thought was right and everyone ended up living in absolute chaos and terror. 
And, and I bring that all up, and I, I think this story is so important for us to talk about today in, 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 in the world that we live in, in the culture that we live in. I think it's so important to bring this up because it seems to me that more and more and more we live in a day and age and we live in a culture in which everyone is absolutely convinced that their behavior and their, their beliefs are absolutely right, and their behavior is absolutely right because they are absolutely right. In other words, I'm right, therefore whatever I feel and whatever I decide and whatever I do is right and must be right. And so the way this plays out, the way you date is right to you, therefore nothing you do in your dating relationships is wrong. The way you handle your finances is right to you, therefore nothing you do with your finances is wrong. The way you approach your relationships and your family is right to you, so nothing that you do in regards to your family is wrong. The way you approach your physical health is absolutely right to you, so nothing that you do with your body or put in your body could possibly be wrong. Think of this. Even in relation to COVID over the last few months, how many people have you known? How many people have you met? How many people have you seen on social media that weren't absolutely convinced that they were right and everybody else was wrong, and therefore they were convinced that whatever they were doing was right? I mean, how many people have you met that weren't convinced that they were right? None? That's the, that's the right answer. You haven't met anyone who didn't think that they were right and that what they were doing was right. Everyone is convinced that they're right and everyone's convinced that therefore because they're right, they must be doing right. And here's, and here's what, we're, what we're all ultimately doing. Everyone is doing whatever is right in our own eyes. And ultimately, we're doing something that we're, what we're, we're chasing what I would call the mythical dream of autonomy the mythical dream of autonomy. And here's what the mythical dream of autonomy is. I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want to, with whomever I want to. I want to do what I, whatever I want to, whenever I want to, with whomever I want to. And because we're kind of civilized as a society, because we're all good, upstanding Americans, we've added a little caveat that I want to do all that as, you know, as long as no one gets hurt. I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, as long as no one gets hurt. Now, I, I say that this is the mythical dream of autonomy because let's be honest, to live this way for any extended period of time, it gets really, really, really expensive because eventually you need to hire a lawyer. Eventually you need to hire a lawyer because just like the Israelites, if you lived in isolation from everybody and everything, you could do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and no one would get hurt. But everyone, every single one of us living for whatever we want, whoever we want, however we want, it leads to a, a whole bunch of things that nobody wants. Everyone gets hurt when everyone is living for themselves. Everyone gets hurt when everyone is living for themselves. It leads to a whole bunch of things that no one wants. It leads to a whole bunch of regrets. Although, if, if I can be honest, I think we are starting to live in a culture where it seems like regret has become a bad word. No one should have regrets because everyone's just doing right by themselves. As long as you're doing right by yourself, you should have no regrets. It leads to regrets, it leads to heartbreak, it leads to financial ruin, it leads to debt. When you chase the, the mythical dream of autonomy that I want to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it with, we all end up broken. And there is no version of that that doesn't hurt someone. And even if it doesn't hurt someone else, can I remind you, you are someone. So when you end up with a broken heart while chasing after your pleasures, you still get hurt and you 
are someone. We all know that this is destructive. We all know that chasing after our own, our own ways and, our own, and deciding our own code of ethics, we, we all know that that's destructive and it breaks us and it breaks people and it breaks hearts and it leads us to terrible places. But we're all chasing it because we think that freedom is found in absolute autonomy. That I'm the most free when I live by my own code of ethics and determine my own course for living. The problem is, and you know this, you know this, that you are a terrible judge of right and wrong. I'm a terrible judge of right and wrong. That when you live only for yourself, you'll find that you have actually given up freedom. That when you live doing whatever you want for as long as you want, eventually you find yourself not being able to do what you want because you have been mastered by the very thing that was once an expression of your freedom. What you find is that when you chase autonomy, you do not find freedom, you find new masters. And you find masters that do not care about you. Credit card companies do not care about you. Judicial systems do not care about you. Dr drugs do not care about you. The bottoms of the, of the bottles of alcohol that you're drinking do not care about you. The things that you look at on your computer late at night, they do not care about you. You do not find freedom. You find a new master and that master does not care about you. See, we think freedom is found in absolute autonomy, but in reality, ultimate freedom is found under absolute authority. Ultimate freedom is found under absolute authority. See, what, what the nation of Israel experienced was they kept drifting and drifting and drifting from God, and they kept finding themselves deeper and deeper and deeper in the holes that they dug for themselves. In one sense, they were freer than they had ever been. They weren't listening to anybody. And in a very real sense, they kept finding themselves more and more bound by the consequences of their terrible decisions. But here's what's weird. For the, for the author of Judges, the conclusion that he comes to is not, well, the ultimate proof of what we need is that we need to return to God once and for all. He says, well, we had no king. What would you expect people to do? See, what, 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 what he understood in a human sense is that every single one of us needs a better standard for our lives than ourselves. But he didn't understand that we needed a higher standard, that we didn't just need another earthly standard. What he did was say, well, you know what? You know, like, we just need to choose a, 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 a small K king. We need to choose a small K king, not the king. The answer to all of our problems is that we need to choose a king with a small k rather than turn and bow to the king. See, here's, here's, here's what I know. Even when we look beyond ourselves, our tendency is to look to small king authorities. We, we, we tend to look for other humans, other, other, other human authorities to be the ultimate authority, the, the thing that we'll, that, we'll, that we'll submit our lives to and surrender our lives to and follow the advice of and listen to and obey. And, and, and we tend to look to these things and what we find is that they are small kings. They are small kings and small kings are just like the masters that we so often turn to in our own wisdom. They do not love you. They do not care about you. They only want to build their own kingdoms. And let me just let you know, political parties are small kings. Political parties are small kings. And let me just tell you, some of you, you just heard me say, Democrats are small kings. 
And others of you, you just heard me say, Republicans are small K kings. Here's what you think. You think the party that doesn't believe what you believe, that's a small K king. But your, but your party, well, that's something that's worth, worth paying attention to. At the end of the day, every political party is a small king. Living for your parents' approval and applause while you're an adult is a small king. Living for the approval and, and applause of people that you do not know and you do not like, living to impress people with a lifestyle that you can't attain is, is a small K king. A book that you read that seems wise to you, it's a small K king. It's a small king. And small kings make terrible masters. That's why freedom is not found there. Ultimate freedom, ultimate freedom is only found under absolute authority. And the only true absolute authority who knows and sees far beyond what any of us know and see is God himself. He's the ultimate authority. He's the only big K king that there is. He's the only king worth bowing to. He's the only king who will not master you in a way that harms you. He's the only king who can actually bring you freedom. And the freedom that he brings, it's only found in surrender and submission to him. So today, as we draw to a close, here's two, two questions that honestly, I hope I, if, if I could tell you what I hope right now, I hope that these questions will bother you. I hope that you'll sit with them long enough that it gets you to look beyond what's right in front of you and what's right in your own eyes, but that you would look to the King who is right. Here's the first question to, to all us Christians out there who love, who love being right. Have you settled for a version of Christianity that agrees with everything that is right in your own eyes? And I'll, I'll let you know how, how to know if you, if you have. If your faith never challenges you and bothers you into rethinking how you approach the world and treat people around you, you have settled for a version of Christianity, unfortunately, where Jesus is not Lord, in your version of Christianity, if, 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 if that's you, and, and if, if that's you, like, let me just tell you, I've, I've been where you are. But if that's you, Jesus is not your Lord. You are your Lord. Jesus is a nice accessory that you pull out every once in a while when Jesus agrees with you. And if that's you, can I just tell you today, today, I hope could be a wake-up call for you, that it's time to turn from that. It's time to repent and it's time to stop embracing a version of Christianity where you get to stay Lord. It's time to embrace Jesus as not just the Savior who bails you out, but as the Lord who keeps you out, as the Lord who guides you, as the Lord who directs you, as the Lord who commands you and paves the way for your future and leads you to experience ultimate freedom that's only found in true surrender and true submission to Him. Some of us need to repent for choosing and embracing a version of Christianity where we get to stay Lord. And then some of us, for some of you, I, I, I hope and I pray that this is a, a little bit of a wake-up call because some of you, let's be honest, you've been hanging out on the border of Christianity. And sure, you show up at church sometimes, and sure, sometimes you even show up at a small group. Maybe you volunteer. Maybe you give some money here and there. But if you're honest, most of your life is spent and most of your energy is spent on doing whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, with whoever you want. You're still chasing the, myth, the mythological dream of autonomy. And what you know and what you've found out and what I hope maybe today can be a reminder of is that nothing good is found on that path. 
you have not and you will not find anything good on that path. And today, as we're talking, today's the time to turn. Today's the time to bend the knee to the king. Today's the day to surrender. Today's the day to submit. Today's the day to make Jesus not just your savior and not just the guy who bails you out, but he's, it's the day to make him your Lord and your king, the ultimate authority in and over your life. And when you do, you will find that he has freedom that you cannot get on your own, but you can only get by submitting and surrendering to him. So here's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray to close this in a minute. But before we do that, I just want to say, if today is the day for you to repent, today's the day for you to repent. And right now, as we're meeting online, as we're, as we're in living rooms and as we're in kitchens, as we're in bedrooms all, all around the city and maybe even all over the country, maybe even all over the, all over the world, maybe just to, maybe today is the day to get real with God and to turn from the way that you have been living, to turn from whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want to turn to say to God, whatever you want. You're the king, you're the authority. And today, if you would like to make that decision, if you'd like someone to talk about it with, I would love for you to reach out with the email address on screen or the phone number that's on screen to talk with us, to let us know that you're making the decision so that we can help guide you in your next steps. Let's pray together today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are good. Thank you that you love us more than we can possibly imagine. Thank you that you are the king. And God, for, for all of us, for the ways that we have been tempted and that we have bowed to smaller kings or that we've bowed to our own desires and our own pursuits, God, I pray that today, that today would be a day where we wake up and we make the decision that we will no longer chase after our, our own ways, that we'll no longer chase after other people's ways, but that we will chase after your ways, that we would bow our hearts, that we'd bow our lives, we'd bow our relationships, we'd bow our finances, we'd bow our dating relationships, we would bow our careers, we would bow everything that we have before you. I pray that we would submit and surrender to you as the ultimate authority in our lives and the ultimate authority over our lives. Help us, God, to love you. Help us to trust you enough that we would follow you even when we disagree with you. And God, as we, as we do that, as we make these choices today, as we turn from our ways and turn to your ways, I simply pray that you would show yourself faithful as we know you are. Show yourself strong as we know you are. Show yourself wise as you give us the better way forward. And God, show, our, show us that we will find real freedom only when we surrender to the real king. We love you, God. Help us to have wisdom to know what to do. Help us to have the courage to do it right now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.